I tell you, it's a little bit uh, disconcerting uh, when the person hosting the meeting tells you that you've come on a strange Sunday and that he hopes you won't think it's too weird. Um, and you're speaking, you know, you think, whoa, wow. But I was grateful that you explained that it was uh, a gift day. Yeah, it's nothing to do with, uh, with me speaking. Okay. <laughs> as, Owen, uh, as Owen said, we're uh, continuing our series today uh, entitled On the Road with Jesus, going through uh, chapter by chapter in Luke's uh, gospel. Uh, but actually today we're, we're not on the road. We're actually static. We're in someone's house for the entire uh, length of the passage that Anne has uh, read to us. And uh, so we know that from, from our previous uh, week's messages that Jesus is actually en route to Jerusalem. And as he's going en route to Jerusalem, uh, he's, uh, he's become increasingly popular amongst the masses. The, the masses, the people, love Jesus for his teaching, uh, for the miracles that he performed, the healings that he performed. Uh, they thought he was great. But we've seen the growing hostility towards him of the Pharisees and the religious authorities of that time. They were really troubled by the fact that he associated with sinners. He associated with those that they didn't want anything to do with, those who were rejected by society. We've seen him healing a leper and touching that leper. We've seen him allowing himself to be anointed with perfume by a prostitute. The Pharisees found this a complete anathema. We've seen Jesus challenging their hypocrisy and their slavish adherence to the law as he healed people on the Sabbath. That was an absolute no-no to them. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the healing of the woman who was bent double. And earlier in our series, we saw Jesus healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law and on another occasion, a man with a withered hand. And all of these healings took place on the Sabbath. And again, Jesus made claims that he was the Messiah in the synagogue in Nazareth, Nazareth having read the passage from Isaiah that talked about the Messiah coming and preaching and healing, Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Even last week, as Owen shared from chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, we saw Jesus challenging his listeners on their belief that they, the Jewish people, and possibly a few others, just a few, were those who would be saved and who would see eternal life. He taught them yet again that he'd come for all people and that it was those who recognized their need of a savior and who responded to his call in repenting who would join him for eternity, who would partake in the feast of the kingdom of God. So Jesus was popular amongst the masses but he certainly wasn't with the religious leaders. They were still looking to trap him, to find some charge against him that would stick. And the context for the passage we read today is just that. We're going to work through uh, the passage in sections, seeing what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees and actually how that applies to us today. 
So let's look at the opening part of that passage. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. There was nothing special about this particular Sabbath day. But we find Jesus here in a Pharisee's house for a meal after the synagogue service. We're told that the host was a ruler of the Pharisees or a prominent Pharisee. And Jesus wasn't the sole guest. The host had assembled an impressive array of other guests, lawyers and other Pharisees. On first reading, you might think, wow, how hospitable this was. Isn't it a great way of being warm and welcoming to Jesus? But the five words at the end of verse 1 give the game away. They were watching him carefully. The Pharisees were the most ardent Jews when it came to observing the law. It was the law that gave them their power. This was no cozy social occasion. They'd gathered together for a purpose. They'd gathered together because they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to ensure that there were many witnesses available to his indiscretion so that any charges they brought against him would stick because of the weight of evidence and actually the credibility of those giving evidence. What else was needed? Well, of course, it would help if there was someone there who had a need. They'd seen Jesus time and time again heal people when they were in need, heal people on the Sabbath, casting out demons, even raising the dead. So how convenient, how convenient when we see that there's one other character present, a man with dropsy. You, like me, might have to reach for the dictionary or go online to look up dropsy as to what that means. Well, dropsy meant that there was a retention of fluids in the body, that there was swelling in the body that made the man look quite disfigured. Not a pleasant sight. And we're not, called, we're not actually told what caused the dropsy. It could be that he had failing uh, kidneys or liver or heart, but something was causing this retention of fluids in his body, some underlying condition. He certainly would have stood out from the rest of the company. He didn't fit in. He could have just wandered in, of course, but actually it seems to me that it fits very much with the occasion that he was there by design. He was the bait that the Pharisees were going to use to trap Jesus. On this occasion, before engaging with a man with dropsy, Jesus poses the Pharisees a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
It's a really clever question. They'd taken the Mosaic law and they'd embellished it with some of their own thinking and tradition, making things that were originally permissible no longer so. They knew that if they said yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, they could not have criticized Jesus. And they would have been seen to go against the laws that they were holding others to. They could have been seen as hypocritical. However, if they said, no, it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath, they would have appeared callous and uncaring in allowing a sick person to continue suffering. It was a tough question and one that they had no answer to. Of course, Jesus knew where they stood. After he healed uh, the, the uh, woman who was crippled and bent double, we, we read about it a couple of weeks ago, the synagogue leader told the people that there were six days for work and that they should come to be healed on the Sabbath day, on, on, on those days and not on the Sabbath day. So Jesus knew exactly where they stood. Luke, who normally gives a pretty detailed account of healings and so on, then tells us that Jesus healed the man with dropsy, just like that, and sent him away. This man clearly wasn't a guest. He sent him away, and the man uh, went no longer on the scene. No detail, no instructions to the man. He left. But Jesus is far from finished with his fellow guests. He's much to teach them. He poses them another question that shows them the folly of the stance that they were proposing to take and that they had taken previously when he healed on the Sabbath. He likens the healing to an emergency situation that any one of them might have faced and challenges them as to whether they would have acted in mercy. It's very similar to the challenge Jesus issued on previous occasions when he healed the man with a withered hand, he asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy? On this occasion, he makes his point by asking which of them wouldn't act to save their son or an ox on the Sabbath if they'd fallen into a well. Once again, they were lost for words. They naturally wouldn't want to allow suffering to their son or heir. Nor would they want to lose something of value, such as their livestock. They would certainly act in an emergency situation such as that. When it suited them, when it suited them and was in their personal interest to do so, they could ignore the law. But when it was a situation from which they were detached and had no personal interest, they stood firmly behind the law. They were more interested in holding others to account under the law than they were about worshipping God and recognizing in Jesus the one sent as the Messiah. Those who had sought to trap Jesus had themselves been trapped by his clever and insightful question that revealed their hypocrisy. Jesus then moves on to share with his host and with the fellow guests two parables. 
The first involves a wedding feast. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, Which, when, when you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Are you a people watcher? I, I personally love sitting outside a restaurant or a coffee bar and observing people. I actually love doing it um, when you can abroad where maybe the cultures and behaviors are somewhat different to our own. Just observing how people behave in that situation. It's fascinating. And here we have Jesus people watching. And what he saw gave him an opportunity to teach his fellow guests a kingdom principle. What he'd observed was that in spite of their religiosity and their desire to impose the law on others, these Pharisees and scribes were in fact a sinful bunch, full of their own self-importance and utterly selfish. He saw them grasping for position and status, wanting to be seen and treated as the greatest. They wanted to ingratiate themselves with the host, seeking his approval, the approval of man, so he saw them navigating their way to the top places, to the top seats at the table. Jesus spoke of a wedding feast where by tradition, people would be seated by rank or position, as still happens today. The most important guests would arrive last. We've seen it, haven't we? at state banquets that have been on television or royal occasions that have been televised, where the queen always, by tradition, arrives last and takes her place. It'd be weird, wouldn't it, if somebody had taken her place before you know, she got there. The late arrival of an important guest might lead to the host having to ask a guest who'd arrived earlier to move to a lower position at the table. So humiliating if you were that guest. Far better for him to have taken a lowly position and then to be called up higher by the host. In sharing this story, Jesus wasn't just giving some lesson in social etiquette. That's not what he wants to do. That's not what he wants to teach us either. This is described as a parable so it's a story with a, a spiritual significance. And we need to understand the deeper meaning behind the story. The parable describes a wedding feast or a marriage feast. And Jesus uses this picture to describe to them the kingdom of God. He wants to describe and to demonstrate to them 
kingdom principles and to show them just how far off the mark they were. The principle he wants them and us to understand is stated so clearly in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus has observed of their behaviors is alien to the values and behaviors of those who will be saved and enjoy eternity in his presence. The behaviors of these Jewish leaders showed them to be proud and arrogant and self-centered. They saw themselves as the chosen people, but they lived a life that was full of pretense. They looked good on the outside. They did all the right things. They appeared devout and righteous. But underneath it all, they were plotting against the one who came to save them. They'd rejected Jesus, and they would have no place in the kingdom of God. Jesus needed to set them straight. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he taught behaviors and values that were countercultural. They were countercultural then, and they actually are still countercultural today. The behaviors he taught were not those that would see men and women achieve great power and position and wealth in this life, but those that would qualify them for eternal life, for life in the kingdom of heaven. You only have to look into the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus shared the Beatitudes to see how countercultural values of the kingdom are with values today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the world's standards, these and others listed sound crazy. They seem like a nonsense. Quite the opposite of what we see today and what we're taught. The world teaches us that we should stand up for ourselves, that we should push ourselves forward, portray ourselves in the best light. Be strong. To do so might lead to your promotion at work might gain you fame or might gain you possessions and wealth, but they'll count for nothing in eternity. In fact, they'll serve to disqualify us from entry into God's kingdom. Let's not be squeezed. Squeezed into doing things the way the world would teach us or expect us. Let's be a people who seek to live by God's kingdom's values. Luke expresses the principle in verse 11 using the passive form of the verbs. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's be clear. It's God that does the exalting, and it's God that does the humbling. He sees right into our hearts. He knows how we are. He knows when we're proud and arrogant. And 
he responds accordingly. Having brought some countercultural teaching to his fellow guests, and in doing so, probably given them even more reason to hate and despise him, Jesus now turns his attention to his hosts with another parable. How seemingly inappropriate it is to challenge your host on the people he's invited to the party. They're all the wrong people. You've made a big mistake. You should have invited other people. But that's just what Jesus does when he uses this parable. He says also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resur resurrection of the just. Let's be honest. We all like being with people like ourselves. Yeah, people similar to ourselves. People who share our lifestyle or similar personality to us. People with the same interest or similar type of work or hobbies, maybe even with the same political views. The conversation flows so much easier, doesn't it? Naturally, less risk of embarrassing moments, less risk of awkward silences, less risk of conflicts. More than that, though, if we have them over to our place, there's every chance we'll get invited back to theirs. And that's just what's happening here in this parable. Jesus observed that the host had invited all his mates, the rich, the successful, the powerful people, lawyers and fellow Pharisees, knowing that they would reciprocate. In doing so, Jesus revealed something about himself. Sorry, in, in, in doing so, this Pharisee revealed something about himself that he was utterly selfish. He was only interested in himself. He wasn't interested in showing hospitality if it had no payback for him. He was looking for the reward for the payback. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that we can't or that we shouldn't be hospitable to our family, our friends, our neighbors. Of course not. He did. He did that. He associated with friends and and family. But his teaching here is to include others, to look out for those and include those who are marginalized, those who may be less well off, those who through their circumstances would find it hard or impossible to repay our hospitality, to put aside self-interest and show true hospitality. This is all shaping up for a pretty tense and awkward meal. Yeah? The host had invited Jesus with the hope of trapping him. And here Jesus was getting firstly at the guest and now at the host. Jesus has turned things around by pointing to things that they'd done as evidence of their character flaws. This wasn't going as they intended but we're not done yet. Let's read on. When 
one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, What you've commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There must have been quite, a, quite an atmosphere at this point, probably an awkward silence following the rebuke of Jesus to his host. Have you ever been in that situation where someone said something that seems utterly inappropriate and the room goes silent and everyone's waiting for somebody else to kind of make the first comment and suddenly you know, somebody can't stand it any longer and blurts something out just to break the tension? in the room, sometimes the most random of comments. And it was just so on this occasion. One of the guests blurted out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Wow, that sounds absolutely fabulous, doesn't it? What, a, what an amazing comment. What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, Jesus sees right into the heart of the man. He knows the comment comes from a smug sense of self-satisfaction. We're okay. I and my fellow guests are okay. You know, we're going to see the kingdom of heaven. We're the people who will be sitting, enjoying the feast in the kingdom. Yes, we're in. This is a continuation of the theme. We looked at last Sunday when the Jews asked Jesus whether only a few were going to be saved. A few, that is, besides them. They thought they were okay. That their religious practices and pious words qualified them for salvation. Jesus had to put them straight. And he did so then with the illustration of the narrow door. On the occasion of this meal, the Jews present were leading Pharisees and scribes, and they too thought that there was no question about it, that through all of their observances and rituals, they were qualified for heaven. Jesus, in his kindness, uses another parable to show that they're wrong and to give them another opportunity to repent and to turn. And so Jesus launches into the parable 
we just read about a great feast. As was customary, invitations had gone out to the guests way ahead of the day of the feast, and they'd accepted. Now, understand me, this is, this is more than you know, having a magnet on your fridge saying, save the date, you know? This isn't, this isn't that. This was an invitation that had been sent out and had been accepted, yeah? Then on the day of the feast, all the preparations were complete. And as was customary, the master sent out his servant to those who'd been invited to tell them, everything's ready, come to the feast. A personal invitation from their host. But as the servant went around, one by one, they all began making excuses for why they could no longer come. This would be pretty bad form today, wouldn't it? But in those days, it would have been considered an unpardonable breach of etiquette. Let's look briefly at the reasons they gave. I've bought a field. I must go and see it. Now, I know COVID has changed things slightly. And some people have been buying houses without necessarily seeing them, as it were, in the flesh or brick by brick. But actually, in most cases, people have seen them online and done a virtual tour or whatever. The scenario here seems pretty implausible in normal times, buying without first seeing. And if you've seen it once and completed the transaction, why do you need to go today? Why today? What's wrong with going tomorrow? All in all, a pretty hollow excuse. And then the next one, even worse, I think, I bought some oxen. I want to go and examine them. Well, if the oxen weren't healthy when you bought them, they're not going to be healthy when you go and see them today. You can go and see them uh, tomorrow. They're not healthy. They were worthless then, and they'll be worthless when you go and see them tomorrow. There'll be no change. A day's delay wasn't going to change anything. And then the third excuse, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. I've got to be a little more careful here, I think. I mean, I've got relatively newly married in front of me. I've got 16-year-old married, uh, you know, 60 years of married uh, life sitting over here. Uh, this was still an excuse. It wasn't a reason. It was an excuse. The guest probably felt he had an excellent reason uh, for not coming to the party. But like others, it was just a feeble excuse. Could he have asked to take his wife with him? If not, would she still have been there when he got home? Um, I think so, probably. Yeah. It was a feeble excuse, let's face it. All three resemble reasons stated in Deuteronomy 20. If you go back into the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 20, these were reasons why people could absent themselves from the fray why they could avoid going to battle. But there were reasons why they could avoid something that was their duty. In this parable, this wasn't about duty. This was absenting themselves from a fabulous celebration, from a banquet, a great celebration to which they'd been invited. 
And this was a snub to the hosts. What they were really saying was, you know what? I don't really want to be at your party. I place greater store by these material possessions or by this relationship than I do on being with you and joining your banquet. It was a huge insult to the hosts. For us today, here in the marquee or online, the invitation from Jesus has gone out. It's an invitation that requires a response, and that response calls for each one of us to make a choice, to decide where our priorities lie. Jesus calls us into relationship with him. He calls us to repent of our sin, to turn to follow him. He promises us forgiveness, his Holy Spirit to guide us and to help us, a peace that passes all understanding, regardless of what you're going through in life. His presence with us, always in this life, and the promise of eternity spent with him in heaven. Today, that invitation goes out. On his behalf, I issue that invitation to you today. You cannot say you weren't aware. You cannot say the invitation got lost in the post. The invitation calls for you to respond. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. If you don't respond yes, then that is effectively a rejection. It's you saying my affections and priorities lie elsewhere. Maybe for you it's about building your career or becoming successful. Maybe it's about accumulating wealth and possessions, securing your future. Maybe it's about focusing on your family and ensuring your children get a good start in life and a good education. Please don't misunderstand me. God doesn't decry these things. They're legitimate in their own right. What's wrong is when we allow these things to take priority over the invitation that we've received to the feast, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me ask you today, have you truly believed in him? Are you following him? Would we and would others around know from your lifestyle, from your behaviors, from your attitudes, and from your deeds that you're a Christian? Are you looking to him to be Lord of every aspect of your life? If not, or if you're not sure, I urge you not to leave it, but to act today. If you're online, message us. If you're here in person, speak to someone before you leave today. The parable continues as the host sends out to the, ser the servants to gather the poor, the crippled, the blind and lame to bring them to the feast instead of the original guests. The message Jesus was giving to his fellow guests at the table was that if they, the scribes and the Pharisees, didn't recognize the Messiah and rejected the invitation of salvation that he brought, then the invitation would go out to others in the Jewish nation to the marginalized in society, to the sinners and publicans who they despised. 
and some of those were gathered. Some accepted the invitation to the feast, though they must have felt quite uneasy and quite undeserving. They were unaccustomed to receiving such lavish hospitality. Even then, there was still room. So the master sent out the servants again to gather the rough sleepers, the homeless, the travelers, and to bring them in because the tradition was that the feast couldn't start until every place was filled. In extending the invitation still further, the master was going beyond the Jewish nation and inviting Gentiles to partake, partake of the feast. And that's our glorious hope that we, most of us in this uh, marquee this afternoon, can benefit from that glorious invitation to join the feast, to partake, partake of that feast. But note the sad and direct warning Jesus gave to the scribes and Pharisees gathered with him for the meal. In the final verse of our reading, he told them that none of those who were invited, in other words, them, the scribes and the Pharisees, none of them shall partake, shall taste of my banquet. They'd had their opportunity. They knew of the promised Messiah through the law and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. And they'd accepted that as the first invitation, if you like. But now the second invitation had come in the person of Jesus, the fulfillment of the prophecies. They were rejecting him and the invitation of eternal life that he brought. They were hostile towards Jesus instead of recognizing their need of him and turning to him in repentance. The message Jesus has for us today is the same as went out from those servants to the intended guests. Come, come for everything is now ready. He's done everything for us, everything that is necessary for our salvation, everything that is necessary for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be made right with God. He did it all when he went to the cross and shed his blood because the shedding of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Paul's letter to the Romans tells us that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you accepted your invitation to the feast? If not, will you do so? Or will you continue to allow other things to take priority in your life? We have an opportunity this afternoon to share in the feast that Jesus instituted with his disciples before he went to the cross as we share communion together. We do so only until he comes. And on that glorious day, those who have truly believed will share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So concluding, Jesus has hit a number of topics as he shares with these Pharisees and scribes. He's talked about their hypocrisy. He's talked about their pride and self-importance. He's talked about their selfishness. He's talked about their belief that because of their talk, because of their rituals, 
they think they're okay, they qualify for heaven. And actually this afternoon, Jesus would challenge us on the same things. Are we full of pride and self-importance? Are we selfish in the way that we behave towards other people? Is there hypocrisy about the way in which we go about things? Do we have this belief that because we appear self-righteous that we're okay and we'll gain access to the kingdom of heaven? Before we share communion, I just want us to pray. And if those things have have touched you, just to repent of, of those things and come before God and ask for his forgiveness before we take communion together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you've done everything that is necessary to buy our freedom, our salvation from sin, our forgiveness. You've done everything that's necessary to cancel out our sin and to make us acceptable to God our Father. We want to thank you so much for that. We want to thank you so much that the work is complete. We want to thank you so much that the invitation has gone out and goes out today that we can participate in the feast. The feast that will happen in eternity when we gather with you. We want to pray, Lord Jesus, that no one in this tent and no one online will miss out on that invitation. We want to pray that nobody will turn away that invitation, that nobody here today or online will come up with feeble excuses as to why they cannot partake and accept that invitation. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to do business with you today, to, to just repent of, of our sin and to come before you and seek your forgiveness and to know that through what all you've done for us on the cross, we can be found acceptable in your sight and that we will have open access to that feast when we join you in eternity. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus. Amen.